I like to say that preparing for divorce is like preparing to go into battle. There are situations where people are getting divorced and you think it's going to be really amicable, but you never know when things are going to take a turn. So I always say, think really strategically and think about protecting yourself. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independent Show, where today we have on divorce and fraud expert, Tracy Conan. But before we get into that, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody, just getting settled back in in Austin after being in the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands for a week, which was really good time. The water was the craziest color blue I've ever seen. I've been to Mexico and different parts of the Caribbean, but this water on St. John was, if you've seen the water boy, it's like that Bobby Boucher water that he carries around. <laughs> it's a crazy color blue. Definitely the the coolest part for me was when we rented a boat for the day and we actually you know got to drive it ourselves and just got to go to all the different beaches. And they have these little kind of floating buoys that you just tie up to. So you don't even have to dock them, which makes it really simple. But it was a great time. Of course, you know, I was while I was there, I was like trying to figure out how to navigate the grocery situation because it's pretty rough over there. <laughs> yeah. But we made it work and we had a good time. And I'm not exactly sure when my next trip is, but it could be coming up pretty soon because my unlimited frontier flight pass starts this week. So uh, I even bought like a special bag that is the exact dimensions of the personal item. So I'm going to use and abuse that thing. You're going to be putting that $600 to use. I am sure of it. For those who missed it, I think it's unlimited flights all year, right? For 600 bucks. Yeah, unlimited flights from this week until next May. How was your week? So this past weekend, I actually drove down to Cape Cod, which is with no traffic. It's like an hour 45, and we got there with no traffic, which was absolutely amazing. I think it's still a little early in the season. But we have some friends who moved down there. One of my friends works at like a Falmouth hospital. So there was a whole group of us down there, and it was a ton of fun. Side note, something I've been starting to pick up a lot more is running. So I was like really into running a couple of years ago and me and a friend kind of just decided we want to run the Boston Marathon next year. So registration doesn't start till September or anything, but I've been kind of putting in the miles on my legs and kind of getting back into that running shape because I would love to have like a, if I could get like sub three hours and 30 minutes in the Boston Marathon, that would be pretty awesome. And I've done a half in an hour 48. So I'm like, if I train, I could probably get there. So that's another development. And then the last thing I got going on, we just sold our flip, which I've been talking about like so many weeks over and over. And, you know, we had one under contract and then that fell through. We finally sold the flip. We got it for 200. We put about 50 grand into it. The debt service, which was just like the interest payments to the hard money lender, were twelve thousand. Sold it for three eighty, so we ended up making about one hundred and eighteen grand in profit. Now that's split between myself and actually my friend James, who's gonna be running the Boston Marathon with me, the contractor. But we were still pretty happy with how it came out because he was just like moonlighting it. He did all the work, I did all of the other stuff, the whole buying process, all the accounting, all of the making sure that all the boxes were checked, people were getting paid, bills were getting paid. And it really worked out. So we were super pumped about that. And I think I'm going to be hunting for flip number two soon. That's incredible. Thanks, man. Congratulations. Well, that's enough about us, Justin, and what we got going on, because we have a lot to cover today, a lot to unpack in this episode with Tracy Conan. 
we were excited to have Tracy on because it's kind of a topic that we haven't really talked about, haven't really explored before. It's not a fun topic, so don't get too giddy for those who are listening out there. But she is a divorce expert, a fraud expert. And in this episode, we talk about the best tools to navigate, you know, getting married to a partner. We cover prenups, money conversations, a bunch of different tools and tactics like the preventative stuff because we made a point where we're like, all right, Tracy, we understand that going through the divorce process stinks, especially if you don't have like your financial ducks in a row. But we'd love to talk about some of the preventative stuff so that people in our audience don't end up getting into a bad situation where they wish they did something earlier on when they first got in the relationship. So we talk about a bunch of strategies there. Not all of them are legal like prenups. So if you're like, I don't want to do that, totally cool. But then we also do talk about the other side of the coin. If you are getting a divorce, if you're thinking about getting a divorce, all of the things that you should do and all the things that you shouldn't do. This is definitely an episode you'll want to be taking notes. We also get into some really tactical things, which I was pumped about, you know, things like the prenup. And also, I never even heard of a postnup. So maybe that'll be news to some of you and you'll get to understand what those mechanics are. But at the end of the day, like Cody said, we're really trying to figure out, you know, how do you avoid getting in that situation? If you find yourself in that situation, you definitely don't want to be just kind of like sitting on your hands and you want to be able to take care of yourself and protect yourself. So I think this is one of those episodes that hopefully no one ever really has to use. They can use the parts that'll help them from getting in a bad situation. But if you do find yourself in a bad situation, or maybe you know someone who does, um, there's a lot of great tools in here. Tracy also has a lot of great resources that go deeper into all these topics like blogs and videos and podcasts and things like that. So if you want even more materials on this or you want to share this episode with someone, You can find all that over at thefyshow.com slash Tracy. That's thefyshow.com slash T-R-A-C-Y. Take it away, Tracy. My money memories involve dad working in a factory and mom being a stay-at-home mom. So money was pretty tight for us. My parents bought a house when mortgage interest rates were super high. You know, I recall them talking about an 18% interest rate on their mortgage. And so their priority was paying that down as fast as possible. And I remember hearing them talk about making double mortgage payments to try to, you know, get ahead of things. And so we had a nice home. We always had our needs cared for, but we're not wealthy by any stretch. I didn't even realize at the time that we were lower class. I had no idea. It didn't occur to me. But dad worked, mom took care of the money budgeted everything. Unbeknownst to me at the time, in the summer, we had a garden and the money that was saved on groceries was set aside to buy Christmas presents. No idea as I was growing up. My family always emphasized education, that education is the key to everything, that if you can get yourself educated, you can be anything you want to. You can make as much money as you want to. You know, there are opportunities all over the place. We live in the greatest country in the world, but we need you to get educated. And so that's what was always emphasized as I was growing up. And with that education, like what were the things you were targeting when you're, you know, say coming out of high school, thinking about going to college? Because I'm always interested in where people thought they were going, because almost every person we interview on here is in a completely different place in life than where they imagined they would be. I went to college to get a degree in criminology. From day one, that's what my degree was going to be in. And my intention going into college was to one day become a prison warden. I was extremely interested in the criminal justice system, watching documentaries about it, researching it, reading about it. And I really felt like I was someone who could affect some positive change in the criminal justice system. I think that, you know, there are no winners there. There's victims there's offenders, there's the people who look after the offenders, and it's negative for all three of those groups of people. 
And I thought, you know, I'm the kind of person who really tries to look for the best in everything and who gets things done. And so in a position like prison warden, I would really have an opportunity to create such great positive change. Of course, I I really had no concept of how difficult of a job that would be and whether or not I was cut out for that, but that's what I wanted to do. So at some point, your intentions shift a bit because you're not a prison warden today and you've been doing something completely different for the past like 25 plus years. So when did the shift happen and you started focusing more on finances? I am indeed not a prison (laughs) warden. In my sophomore year, I took an elective in the criminology program called Financial Crime Investigation, and that's when it changed for me. I started taking accounting and economics classes and found that I was good at it and decided that I wanted to go into doing financial investigations. I thought that I wanted to do that for the government. I had an internship with the IRS. I didn't particularly love the internship, but I just thought that was a function of you're an intern, you do the grunt work, but when you get to do the real job, it'll be super cool and super fun. So when I graduated, I you know, went into the system of applying to become an IRS special agent, and it can be a very long process. And I needed to do something in the meantime, so I became a probation officer. And so I did that in the inner city of Milwaukee as a 22-year-old, <laughs> which was super, super interesting. I did that for a year, and then I got the call to go to the IRS Worked there for actually a very short period of time and realized it was not the place for me, not in any way, shape, or form. And then I decided to do financial investigations in the private sector instead. And for somebody who hears something like that, financial investigations, what exactly does that mean? Like, what is that career field really, you know, targeted to do? I'm a forensic accountant. You can also call me a fraud investigator. And very simply, I say that I find money. So situations like divorces companies fighting with each other over contracts gone bad or other money shenanigans, brother and sister fighting over mom and dad's money and someone's accused of hiding or stealing money, an executive stealing money from the company they work for. All of those kinds of things fall under the umbrella of what I do. And a lot of what I do is tracing money to figure out where it went, making calculations, you know, figuring out if this hadn't happened, how much money would the company have made? and things like that. And then I testify in court as an expert witness. Aside from that amazing career, and it just sounds like, you know, that's like something you'd see in a movie is like, you know, busting like a Bernie Madoff or some some equivalent. But I think there's a lot of tactical stuff that you share that you talk about that's like really applicable to the everyday person. Things that we should be thinking about, whether that's in our relationships and kind of two goals I want to get out of this episode I mentioned before we hit go here. One, I want to give people kind of the toolkit for prevention so you don't end up in some divorce where you lose everything, you lose the house, you lose all the money and you just end up in this horrible position. And then two, for the people who are in that unfortunate position where they are thinking about divorce and you know it's, it's common and they just really don't know how to gear for it financially, I definitely want to make sure we hit on those first two things. So with that being said, we start with number one and maybe talk about some of the things that, let's say you have a healthy relationship now. So let's not talk about the people who are thinking about divorce. Let's say you have a pretty healthy relationship or at least that's what you tell yourself and that's what you tell other people. What are some things you can start doing to set yourself up financially for a potential divorce down the road? Although nobody wants to think of that as a possibility, it's important to get those things set up right. Well, why don't we talk first how you set yourself up to avoid the divorce? All right, let's do that. <laughs> that's more exciting to me to start off with at Perfect. least. Because we want to start off on a positive note. And it's really about communication and transparency. So communicating about the money issues and talking about expectations, talking about what you're each spending 
talking about how you want to join your finances or in some marriages, some relationships, you don't join your finances, like your long-term partners, but you decide that you're going to keep your money mostly separate. It doesn't matter how you decide to do that as long as you're communicating about it, right? And so communicating is, of course, the key. And I talk about doing things like a regular weekly check-in about the money, like a five-minute conversation. Where are we at on our goal towards saving for a down payment on a home? Are you keeping up on your credit card payments? What's our balance on the credit card? You know, how can we you know, chip away at that or how can we avoid paying interest? So communication. Second piece is transparency. And that means not hiding information about the money from your partner. So even if you decide to keep your finances separate, you each have your own accounts, own bank accounts, own credit card accounts to still be transparent and let your partner know what's going on in those accounts. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think those kind of, you know, those core tenets are true across the board, whether it's finances or anything else, just kind of transparency and talking about things. I think a lot of people know what those are at a high level, but they probably don't really know you know, how they're enacted, how strong they are, the things that they will and will not protect you from. So I was hoping we could spend a decent amount of time talking about the the prenup. Prenups are the most amazing thing ever invented. They get such a bad rap because so many people mistakenly think, oh, you're setting yourself up for divorce. You're planning to split up. They think that the prenup is a tool for one person to take advantage of another. And if we could get rid of all those preconceived notions, we would be in such a better place because all a prenup is, is a contract that says, if we ever split up, here's how it's going to happen. So if you're getting married today, you can forego the prenup and be subject to whatever the laws in your state say, or any state where you and your partner may move someday and live, you know, 10 years down the road, you're living in a completely different state and you want to get divorced. You're subject to whatever their state laws say about how different things are split. For example, in the Carolinas, in order to get divorced, you actually have to live separately for a period of time before you can file for divorce. Um, In Texas, the laws about spousal support are very unfavorable to the person who would like to receive it. So let's say the stay-at-home mom who hasn't worked in a long time, who needs spousal support to reestablish themselves while they're trying to get a career going again. In Texas, the laws are very unfavorable to them. So that's what you set yourself up for if you don't have a prenup. And how do those conversations typically go? So it sounds like you're kind of establishing this thing while the relationship is still going strong. You're like, hey, hey, hon, like, If things unfortunately don't shake out the way we intend them to, this is kind of how things are split up. Like obviously one person who is probably like the person listening to this type of podcast, they're really like into finance. They're probably going to be the one who brings this type of thing up. But how do you actually navigate the conversation so it doesn't become super contestuous and like resentful? You know, I think it's important for the parties to understand that that it is for the protection of both of them. Again, there's that preconceived notion that it is protecting one party over the other. Like we think of, you know, the prenup protects the person who has more money, right? But that's not really true. It does protect that person, but the person who does not have a lot of money will should be looking out for themselves and saying, okay, if I don't have a career now, because you want me to stay home and raise some kids and I don't have a career 10 years from now and we split, what are we going to put in place to make sure that I'm financially stable coming out of this marriage? So it is protecting that lesser person. 
So that's super important is to know that it's for the protection of both people. It's also super important to know that you don't have to have a lot of money or a lot of assets or a big income for a prenup to be advisable. A lot of people, especially younger people, go into marriage thinking, well, we don't really have anything. It doesn't really matter. It does matter. And it'll matter 10 years from now when you do have stuff. And so you're right that now when we're in love is the perfect time to start thinking about this. I would say you asked about having that first conversation. Somebody's got to bring it up. And I think approaching it from a positive standpoint of, I want us both to be protected and I want us to agree on how things are going to get sorted out if we ever split versus letting a judge decide for us. I'm really interested in this topic and figuring out like all the mechanics as we go through this too. I mean, obviously the conversations are really important, but mechanically speaking, like What are some of the line items that you might find on a prenup and how does it work? You know, I think at least for me, when I've ever thought about one or, you know, you see something in the news about one, it's always from the thought process of what you're going into the marriage with. But you just mentioned like it could also protect you or or talk about things that you don't even own yet, like things that you own in the future. Or, you know, it's a financial podcast. A lot of people do a lot of investing and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, maybe this account is worth $100,000 today, but in, you know, 15 years, all of a sudden, you know, it's worth a million dollars, you know, because I've continued putting money in it. It's growing interest. It's compounding. So yeah, really interested to walk through some of those steps. Okay. So with the caveat that I'm not an attorney, I'm a forensic accountant, (laughs) but I know enough about this to be dangerous. What we're going to do in the prenup is list out the assets that we have now and whose name they're in. And then we're going to decide, okay, if we get divorced down the road, what happens to them? So let's say I have an investment account that has $100,000 in it today. We're going to talk about, well, during our marriage, money might get added to that account. How is that going to affect the account? One of the simple ways to do it is to say that account will be stayed completely separate in my name only. And the only money that will go in it is money that comes from my personal earnings. And that money is still going to stay separate. And so that account will never, ever, ever be split. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to say, well, if we ever split that $100,000 plus the earnings on that over the years would remain separate to me. But anything else that went into it while we were married, that part might be split plus the earnings on that. So there's all sorts of different ways that you can sort this out. The key is going to an attorney who has written up a lot of prenups because they know about all the things you should think about. Okay, five, 10 years down the road, you might have X, Y, or Z. Here's the problems that I've seen come up. Here's how we can remedy that. And here's how we can sort that out now. So I just had a friend and we have a lot of listeners who invest in real estate on the podcast. Probably like a third of them are investing or at least interested in investing. And she went through a divorce and it was a nightmare because they didn't have these things spelled out in advance. It was like, one property goes here, one property goes there. We have to sell this property. And going along with Justin's question, it's like, you might have a very different you know, real estate situation t- 10, 20 years from now, if you're a real estate investor, than you have going into the marriage. So are there steps you can take to kind of update and like, okay, now we have this property. This is what's going to happen with this property in case of a divorce or I guess, how does that get spelled out in the prenup? So in the prenup, you want to, at that time, figure out how are we going to acquire these future properties? How are we going to title them? Is there something that is dependent on where the money is coming from to buy them? Is there, what's going to happen with the appreciation them? So you want to figure out like your template for how that works on the front end. But let's say you're already married 
right? You already did a prenup or you didn't do a prenup, but now you think, gosh, it's a good idea to get something in place. You can do a postnup, which is the same type of thing, same type of contract. It's just happening after you're married. So that prenup that you had, that can only happen. It's a contract you're entering into before you get married. Once you're married, it's always a postnup. That prenup can go away and you can do a postnup instead to update things. Okay. And so it can be changed. Now, realizing, of course, that if you're having some marital problems, it's probably going to be pretty difficult to get your spouse to sign a postnup, right? But these things, yeah, they can be changed because your circumstances do change and something might pop up that you never considered when you were doing the contract the first time around. And Tracy, like when you look at the actual prenup, the way it's constructed, what are the actual main parts that make up this document? So there's three things that I want you to think about as being really, really important to this prenup. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. And the first is disclosure. So each of you are going to be completely disclosing all the assets you have and all the liabilities and what they're worth at the time you're signing the prenup. You're going to be exchanging tax returns with each other for a period of time, at least the last year or two of tax returns. And the idea is that in order for the prenup to be valid, you both have to go into it, signing off on it, having full disclosure from the other party about what their financial situation is. So we can't play hide the ball in the front end. So that's the first part is disclosure of all your assets and liabilities and your income. The second important part that you want to think about, which we've already talked about, is how assets would be divided if you ever get divorced. So who gets what in terms of real estate, investment accounts? How do the debts get divided? If we have credit card debt, how would that go? Or you know, loans on different things. And then the third important part is support. Is either party going to pay spousal support to another? And how will that be calculated? So again, the time when the support issue is really, really important is if one person is a stay-at-home parent and doesn't have an income source of their own. And so you want to be sure to cover that in the prenup. So those are the three most important parts and the things that you want to protect as you're going into that process. Now, when it goes to actually generating this document, is it as simple as prenup template on Google or should you consult a professional or somewhere in between? So... As a general rule, each party has to have their own attorney and be represented by their own attorney in order for it to be valid and enforceable because the courts recognize what a significant document this is, especially if someone is kind of signing away rights. If there is one party coming to this who has a significant amount of assets that says, I want to protect this going into the marriage, and the other person is kind of signing off saying, I won't touch your stuff. The courts realize that that's a really significant decision to make. And so they say each party has to have their own attorney 
review it before they can sign off on it. So prenup stuff is is not a do-it-yourself legal issue, but it can be done cost-effectively if you don't have a complicated situation, if you work with an attorney who has significant experience doing it. And then are there things to be on the lookout for that would invalidate one of these prenups, like things that you just need to make sure that you don't do because all of a sudden now that prenup is invalid and you're no longer protected? Yeah. So common things that would invalidate them are someone not fully disclosing their assets or liabilities, intentionally hiding some of that. That can be a big deal if it's something really significant. If one party can prove that they were like forced into signing it or that they didn't have proper legal counsel for it, that would be another reason. There are times when judges can refuse to enforce them if they think it is extremely unfair to one party. So there is always a risk that a prenup might not be enforceable. So we just spent a good bit of time like digging into prenups, which I think for most people, like that's the common thing that they're used to hearing, whether it's because they're you know watching celebrities get married or whatever it is. But are there other tools that people could use? Again, thinking from the context that a marriage is in a good place, you're not thinking about divorce, you're just trying to be proactive and do the right things to protect yourself, to protect each other, to just get things in line. Is there anything else that people should consider outside of a prenup? Yes. Yeah, so I have... Two big suggestions there, and it's stuff that everyone has heard before, but you're going to hear it again today. Budgeting, 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 budgeting. And I mean formalizing the process for your family. So pen to paper or spreadsheets, like legit going through your family's finances, figuring out how much you've been spending each month over the last year or two, and then mapping out going forward, how much are we going to spend on it and keeping tabs on it? Because so many arguments come because of money and what we've been spending money on. And what I find in my work is so many people don't know how much they're spending. You ask the average person, how much do you spend every month on eating out? They will drastically underestimate how much they spend on eating out. So knowing what you have spent in the past, agreeing on what you're going to spend in the future, and then monitoring that, super important on a proactive, positive way to manage the money conversations. And then the other piece that we already talked about is the communication piece, right? And the ongoing communication and discussions about money, check-ins, so that you're staying on top of it. Oh, and there's a third piece. What's the third piece? (laughs) The third piece is being informed. So even if you are not the person who is primarily in charge of the money for your family, because this is really typical that one spouse will manage the family's money, if you're the person who's not managing it, that you are on a monthly basis, at the very least, taking a look at what's going on with the finances. And by that, I mean, looking at the bank statements, looking at the credit card statements, investment statements, just scanning down those transactions, seeing where the money is going. It doesn't have to be a super deep dive, but it keeps accountability for your spouse and it keeps you a little bit in the know. Wouldn't it be nice to know how much you have in your checking account every month? Absolutely. I have a question on bank accounts, actually, because I actually see this often debated on Twitter. And it's like some people are hardcore, one bed, one bank account. That's the only way to do it. If you don't do it that way, then clearly you and your significant other don't trust each other. I also see the other side where people are like, well, that's how you know one partner takes advantage of the other one is they have complete control over this one bank account that's shared. I guess in your line of expertise, have you seen a better method? Like should two people absolutely have like split bank accounts and then a joint one? Is it better to roll everything into one? What have you seen work and what have you seen not work? I have seen it work all different kinds of ways for people. 
What I think is important is your actual circumstance, because there are relationships in which you have one partner who exercises a lot of control over the other person in a really damaging way. And in that kind of relationship, having only that one bank account and letting that person be in charge of it can be really problematic. I'm a big fan of people having bank accounts of their own so that they have some agency over money on their own. And whether that bank account is only for their like spending money for the extras, it still creates a feeling of pride and autonomy for people. Again, especially if one person is a stay-at-home parent and doesn't have an income stream of their own, that can be super important. So the answer to your question is it can work both ways, separate, together, or something in between. I think the key always is that no matter how it is managed, that you have visibility into the other person's accounts, that you can at least see what's going on in those accounts, right? Because you might have a situation where you and your spouse decide we're going to keep separate accounts because that works for us. And we're now saving for a down payment on a house. And we're each responsible to save $10,000 for it. If you're never looking at your spouse's account, how do you know if he or she is actually saving their part of it? You might say, yeah, I have my $10,000 saved. Where's yours? And your spouse hasn't saved any. <laughs> I mean, that's an extreme example, but, but it can happen, right? And then one question I have is about like most of this we've been going through is kind of how do I protect myself from someone taking my assets or how do I make sure I get a fair cut of the assets when they get split? But what about liabilities? Are there things that we need to do to make sure that we don't get stuck with some kind of big debt that we didn't even know the other person was racking up on the side? Justin, that is such a good question. No one has asked me that on a podcast yet. So this is great. I love it. Again, it's about visibility into those statements, right? Looking at the credit card statements and stuff, but now you're probably thinking to yourself, but what if the person has a secret credit card that I don't know about? That's why it's really important to run credit reports on yourselves. And your significant other? <laughs> Well, so legally, you can only run a credit report on yourself. You can't run one on your spouse without their permission. So I'm a fan of we sit down at the same time in front of a computer together and we each run one on ourselves and then we trade them, right? So that way we can see if there are any debts out there that someone has incurred and we can keep up with that in real time. So, you know, use one of the free sites that's out there to get credit reports. You can get your credit report every month and trade it with each other. Some people might think that's overkill for me being in the line of work that I am. I'm really interested in that monthly credit report. So unfortunately, this is the part of the episode I'm not as excited to talk about, but I think it's really important. And before we hit go, you said it's probably a higher percentage than you'd like to think, Cody. People who are either, you know, they're gunning down the path to divorce or in the back of their mind, they just know this isn't the right person for me. Like we probably are going to need to get divorced, whether or not that's in the next couple of months or the next couple of years. We want to make sure that people aren't shooting themselves in the foot breaking the news too early and then all of a sudden the other person like just hoards all the assets and maybe they don't have the prenup and the postnup that we've talked about, all the prevention stuff that hopefully people now take advantage of after listening to this episode. But what's kind of like the, I want to get divorced or I'm thinking about getting divorced checklist, the, the do's and don'ts. I know you could probably talk about this for hours, but let's just try to keep it high level for people. I could talk about it for hours. If you are thinking about getting divorced, if you think it might be a possibility, one of the most important things I tell people to do is gather information. So that means quietly gathering financial information before you break any news to your spouse, make any waves, things like that. The reason why you want to do it quietly is because unfortunately, 
we have a joint bank account. When talk of divorce comes up, suddenly someone's name is taken off the account or they're locked out of online banking. And there are legal ways to get access back to that account, but it can take some time. So I'm always telling people, if you have financial documents at the house, make copies of them and put those copies in a safe place. If you have online access to the bank accounts and credit card accounts and such, go ahead and download all the statements that are available to you there, save them in a safe place. And that's sort of like the first, like get the lay of the land type of thing. Even if you're not planning on looking at all those documents, still get your copies, put them in a safe place. They might help you once you're into that divorce process. And then one topic we talked about a little bit that you know, if you find yourself in this position is kind of that support piece that like, you know, maybe you have sacrificed your career for the other person. What is typically like, are there any kind of rules of thumb there on at what point someone can justify that? Yeah, I did sacrifice enough of my career that I deserve support. Is there like a, you know, something that judges are typically looking for? Every state has their own rules and guidelines for it. So they have charts or, or spreadsheets, formulas, all these kinds of things. And so I can't really talk about a rule of thumb per se, but this is a really important issue. So I'm glad that you brought it up. What the idea is, is that we're going to look at husband and wife, what they each make in their jobs relative to each other, whether each of them is working to their full earning capacity, And is there a period of time where one needs to pay some money to the other to sort of even things out? You know, if you've got one spouse who's making $250,000 a year and the other spouse is re-entering the workforce and is going to make $30,000 or $40,000 a year, the courts have an interest in saying, we kind of want to even that out a little bit. It's not that they have to have the exact same incomes, but it's really not fair that this 200,000 person can go have a certain lifestyle and the 30 or $40,000 person is going to have like a fraction of a lifestyle of them. So there's an interest in evening that out. And depending on how long you were married will probably dictate how long those support payments will continue into the future. So the longer you were married, the longer you're going to get support payments. But one of the really interesting things is In the old days, there was permanent support. So if you were married for a really long time, you could get spousal support for the rest of your life. And states have been doing away with that and saying, no, everyone's got to support themselves. So we're only going to allow you to have spousal support for a period of time. Interesting. Okay. So I definitely want to kind of hop back to the person who's thinking about getting divorced. He said the first thing is getting the financial lay of the land. It's like kind of quietly gathering the documents, getting the bank statements, getting the credit cards knowing you know, if there's mortgages, all that type of things. What are some of the next steps, if any? Or is it just like kind of keeping that at bay for when you do want to make the announcement? I guess, how do you best make that announcement if it's hopefully not like a blowout type of fight? There is no best way to make that announcement. I agree with you that a blowout type of fight is not the best way. Certainly, I think, you know, having that conversation in private where nobody's being embarrassed in front of anyone else is, is probably the best. What I also tell people in terms of preparing for the divorce is really thinking about protecting themselves. I like to say that preparing for divorce is like preparing to go into battle. There are situations where people are getting divorced and you think it's going to be really amicable, but you never know when things are going to take a turn. So I always say, think really strategically and think about protecting yourself. So that means protecting your money, protecting your information, things like that. So I tell people, get a new email address, a brand new email address that your spouse doesn't know. 
because it won't be signed into an old phone that's sitting in a closet Mm. or an old laptop or tablet. That can be a really critical thing. I mean, I've had clients going through divorce who have said, you know, it's weird. It feels almost as though my husband is seeing the emails between myself and my divorce attorney. And in fact, we later find out that there was an old laptop computer where the email address was signed into and, you know, the spouse was getting the emails that way. So if you create a brand new email address, that kind of thing can't happen. You know, I talk to people about really locking down your social media accounts, maybe even considering sort of a hiatus from that for a period of time until things level out. So taking steps like running that credit report on yourself to make sure nothing's popping up there. So a lot of protective things are what I recommend to people in the very early stages. And then as it relates to the money and less dire sounding things, it's a matter of starting to gather financial documents. There's a whole lot of financial documents that you're going to be required to gather and submit for the purpose of the divorce. And so the sooner you can start gathering those, the easier you're going to make it on yourself. And speaking of like protecting yourself, are there any technicalities to really watch out for? Like, hey, do not sign this documentation until you've done this. Like, is there like, you know, this certain form that you're going to see come across and until you've had time to litigate the specific financial piece, do not sign that piece of paper. Is there any kind of gates like that? I mean, I'm kind of a fan of not signing stuff in your divorce unless you've had an attorney look it over with you and advise you that it's okay to sign off on it. I think, you know, people again, want to be cooperative in the process, but sometimes they do get duped into signing things. Oh, I need you to sign off so I can refinance the house because we need to do the thing because that'll be better for the divorce. And then someone ends up in a really difficult situation because they should not have signed off on that. And so unfortunately, to err on the side of caution, I would say err towards signing fewer documents and saying, I'd really like to have an attorney look this over and advise me on this. So we have a very financially nerdy audience. We say that proudly. We have people who are, you know, saving 50 plus percent of their income, retiring super early. Nice. And so something we like to talk about a lot is like tax implications, like making sure your kind of your money is doing the most it possibly can for you. So are there any things to look out for, or I guess maybe just in general at a high level, how do these things work in the eyes of like the tax man in terms of the IRS when like a divorce is happening and assets are getting shifted all around? Any gotchas or things to look out for? Well, so when you are dividing assets, that's not a taxable transaction in and of itself. So you don't have to worry about it on the front end. But on the back end, what you want to be thinking about is we're dividing accounts. Will there be tax implications down the road for those accounts? And so the simplest example I can give, you've got a bank account, a savings account at a bank that has $100,000 in it. You've got an investment account that has stocks in it that are worth $100,000 today. And sometimes people might think, oh, one of us will take one of those accounts, one of us will take the other. Well, guess what? The bank account, no tax implications there. It's just money sitting in an account. The investment account will have tax implications in terms of capital gains, right? Because hopefully, if you were doing it right, those stocks were bought for less than $100,000. So the person who would take that account would have a tax bill at the time that they sell those investments. And so that ends up being unfair somewhere down the road. So I like to tell people to think about, Let's just take every single account you have and divide it in half. And that way, nobody can be damaged on the tax side. Now, of course, if you're being really strategic about the divorce, you know, you could go through some complicated scenarios where one person will take the account that has tax implications, but in exchange, they're giving up something else, right? And there's some fancy tax planning going on. But, you know, for ordinary run of the mill people, 
it is simplest and fairest to just divide each account 50-50. And we've talked a lot about what to do for the people who are, you know, in the shoes of someone who might be working with you. But I'm really curious about like actually what you do and like you're that career field. Is there kind of like a high level way you could walk us through what it is that you're doing on a case, like the processes that you're going through and the tools that you use and just what that looks like to be in this career field? Right. Because if I'm sitting in the audience, I'm thinking, I still really don't know who this lady is and why she has any expertise (laughs) sitting here talking about divorce. So I've been a forensic accountant for 25 years and about a third of the consulting work that I do is in the divorce realm. And so I am going into these cases, typically for wealthy people, because they have more complicated scenarios. And I am looking at all of their spending for a period of three to five years. So I'm going through every bank account, every credit card account, every investment account. I'm putting all those transactions into a database and I'm following the money. What I'm doing is can be for a number of reasons. It can be because we want to understand how much does their lifestyle cost. When you're wealthy, and you're going to pay child support or spousal support, it typically falls outside of what the guidelines or the charts or the formulas are. And so the courts sort of go towards what did the lifestyle cost and how much support should be paid so that someone can continue to live the same lifestyle. So that's one reason we'll do it. Another reason might be because one party is worried that there's hidden income or hidden assets, or that there was spending on inappropriate things like affairs, drugs, gambling, God knows what. I'm tracing all the money through the accounts looking for those types of things. It's funny though, because as I'm hearing you talk about this and you're working with you know much bigger cases than the average Joe and Jane, but it's the kind of same stuff we're talking about today. Like you're going through and looking at all the spending documents. Like you're basically, you're playing catch up for all of those financial conversations that were never had. You're kind of running the credit right. reports that were never ran. It's like your job at the highest level, the simplest level, obviously it I could never do what you do. And <laughs> it's super detailed, but it sounds like a lot of the stuff we've already talked about today, just for you know, big wigs and people making a ton of money with complicated situations. But it all boils down to like the conversations, those you know, credit swap parties where you're, you're both switching the laptops after you run your credit report. So it sounds right. like a lot of this is it's super preventable, kind of walking through the steps you shared with us today. I think if people are staying informed on a monthly basis about what's going on with their money, it really is preventable. The average divorce, average, ordinary, everyday people, many of them do have concerns about the money. They might not have any proof that their spouse is doing anything shady, but by the time you get to divorce, there are negative feelings, there are suspicions. But if you had been looking at those statements on a monthly basis and something weird did happen, you could have headed that off really quickly. So let's say, you know, one month you saw a cash withdrawal from the bank account of $10,000. You can say to your spouse, um, excuse me, what do we take $10,000 out for? And your spouse might say, remember when we went and bought that new car and we were going to put a down payment down on it? I actually went to the bank and got a $10,000 cashier's check for the down payment. And that's what that was. Okay, great. But if it was something shady, right, you could have seen it right away. And then just one more little tactical question in these situations where you're getting all that information, it sounds like something, you know, like that's probably not in the person who's giving it to you's best interest to give it to you. So what's forcing them to give you that information? Is that just the judge like makes them hand over all these credit card statements and bank statements? Okay. So if you are married, what's forcing them to give it to you is the desire to stay married, right? (laughs) You're having that open communication. So during the marriage, you are hopefully willingly exchanging the information with each other. 
once you get into the process of divorce, right? If an account is in your spouse's name, you don't have any legal right to see those documents. You can't go to the bank and say, give me the bank statements. What happens is through the divorce process, an attorney will issue a subpoena to the bank saying there is a court case going on. Bank, you are required to turn over these account statements. So that's how we get it. And that's a process. You know, I tell people, if you can get these statements without going through that process, it's quicker it's easier unless your spouse is obstructing the process and doesn't want to cooperate. If you have to go the route of sending a subpoena to the bank or credit card company, I say, you know, plan on it'll take three or four weeks for you to get the documents back. But that's certainly better than, you know, playing around with a, an uncooperative spouse who is just delaying things and, you know, three months later still hasn't given you anything. So just trying to ask some questions with listeners in mind. One situation that I've seen come up and I've had friends go through this as well is like someone who's a business owner. You're probably not going to be like splitting that business 50-50 with your you know, divorcee. Is that the term? I'm not sure exactly. But with the person you're divorcing, you're not going to be like giving them half your business that you built up, like whatever type of business that is. What are some of the best ways for business owners to kind of think about and navigate a potential divorce and like how to best protect themselves and the business that they built up? The way you protect that business is with the prenup that says exactly what's going to happen to the business. So this is especially important if that business was created long before you got married and it feels like it's your business and your spouse shouldn't have claim to that if you ever split. For a business that started during the marriage, not so simple. You know, the spouses might look upon that as, hey, we kind of both own that business together. What typically happens when there is a business involved in a divorce is the business will be valued by a professional, a business valuation professional who will come in and put a dollar figure on that business to say, if it was sold today, this is how much it would be sold for. And then the person who's keeping that business will have to buy their spouse out of it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so not ideal. <laughs> is it with a check being handed over sometimes, but a lot of times it might be, hey, this business is worth a million dollars. Your spouse is entitled to half of that. So that's $500,000 that you owe your spouse, but there's a house that has a whole bunch of equity in it. Maybe we'll award the spouse all of the equity in the house and that evens it out. So what literally happens in these marriages is we create a marital balance sheet for the divorce where we list out all of the assets that they have, what their values are, and then we have two columns for who's taking what. And then we try to you know, even that out to whatever the percentage should be. And we talk a lot about 50-50 because that's where it often shakes out in divorces, but it is possible for things to be divided unequally. I have worked in cases where, you know, again, there's a stay-at-home parent who is really far behind in earnings, doesn't have retirement savings of their own, will never be able to catch up to where the other spouse is, will never be able to save for retirement like the other spouse can. And I've seen a retirement account get split 70-30 in situations like that. So it can happen or it can be divided unequally. It sounds like in these situations, there's the opportunity for a lot of kind of creativity on how you solve these things. Like even the business one, I could imagine that if both parties agreed to it, maybe you don't even have to consider like selling the business or coming up with a big, huge like half the value. Maybe they just get a percentage of the profits that are coming from that business for as long as the business is still running. But it just seems like that there's kind of creative things that can be done. Are there any things that stand out in your mind over these like the 25 years of experience you've had where you've just seen some really creative ways in which people came to an agreement to settle something? 
I will tell you that going the mediation route in divorce is so much better than going the litigation route. So the litigation route is where you are going to court in front of a judge and letting the judge decide what happens. The mediation route is we're going to take matters into our own hands and come to agreements on our own about how things can be divided. I'll tell you that your theory about maybe someone could get profits for as long as the business is going as an advisor in divorce, I would say don't ever do that because, you know, if the person tanks the business, if you guys have a relationship that goes south five years from now, you never know what's going to happen. And so I like the issues to be settled at the time of divorce and figure out a payout that's done right then and there. But Justin, if you're a trusting person, yes, these creative solutions can work for some people. Well, that's why you're the expert, Tracy, and that's why we had you on to set us straight in our, some of our misconceptions. Well, it's hard if you've never worked in the area of divorce, right? You don't know what those pitfalls would be, but I've seen the pitfalls over and over. And that's the only reason that I can tell you, hey, that might not be the best way to do it. And that's why we had you on. For those who want to learn more about all the stuff you got going on, I know that we kind of just touched on the tip of the iceberg. You have like a whole bunch of educational products and guides for people to kind of figure out a lot of the things we talked about today, but in way more depth. And so for those who are interested, those who want to follow along, those who want all those resources, where is the best place or places for them to get that? The best place for them to find me is on my website, fraudcoach.com, because I like to say I am your fraud coach through your divorce. And I set up a page specifically for your listeners. So it's fraudcoach.com forward slash FI show for financial independence. And what they'll see there is some of the things that we talked about, not necessarily by name, but the divorce money guide is there, which is a tool for the average person who's getting divorced, who needs to get their arms around their finances, needs to understand what financial documents do I need? What's going to happen during the financial part of my divorce? And how do I dig through all of these statements and find useful information? And if you're concerned about potential fraud by your spouse, how would you find that? So that resource is there. My book that's coming out very shortly is going to be there as well. The book called Find Me the Money, which helps people take control, find the truth, and win the money that they deserve in their divorce. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a really interesting topic that we've definitely never had a subject matter expert to go through. It's also making me want to go back and watch Ben Affleck's The Accountant movie, which I actually really did love. <laughs> But I really do appreciate you giving us this time because you are the expert in this. And I think our listeners are going to be able to take away a lot from this. Awesome. It was great being here. You know, I always love helping people understand that, you know, divorce, while it is a really, really difficult situation, go through probably one of the worst things that people can go through. There are ways to come out of it with a better financial settlement, with better control over their money, with more information about their financial situation. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. 
Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available. The very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.